Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. This episode is brought to you by Bombas, game-changing socks. Bombas decided to take socks seriously by designing the most highly engineered, best-fitting, comfortable socks humans have ever imagined, and they look cool Two, woven so they don't fall down, warm in winter, cool in summer, no toe seams, arch support, and more. I'm wearing some right now. I've been wearing them all day. And with every purchase, they donate a pair to a homeless shelter where socks are the most requested item. I got a whole batch of these in the mail, and there are all these different designs and colors, and they have bumblebees on the side. I love them, and they have a no-questions-asked money-back guarantee if you decide you want boring, uncomfortable technologically inferior socks instead. Go to bombas.com slash so smart for 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash so smart. Bombas, be better. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 78. This is the 10th episode in a series of episodes, a season of episodes. All about logical fallacies. Logical, logical fallacies. If you haven't heard the earlier episodes, we covered what logical fallacies are and how they work. And then we talked about the fallacy fallacy, the no true Scotsman fallacy, the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, the black and white fallacy, the straw man fallacy, begging the question, special pleading, moving the goalposts, the genetic fallacy, and the conjunction fallacy. Our three experts in logic and reasoning and thinking in general who will help us understand this episode's fallacy are... I'm Bob Blaskowitz. I'm a assistant professor of critical thinking at Stockton University. Uh, I well, I, I teach students how to basically uh, read and think. So I'm Julia Galef. I a few years ago I co-founded this nonprofit called the Center for Applied Rationality. I have my own podcast called Rationally Speaking, um, in which I focused on applying concepts from psychology and philosophy and statistics to everyday life. I'm Vanessa Hill. I'm the writer and host of Braincraft, which is a PBS Digital Studios series on psychology, neuroscience, and why you act the way you do. And together, they are going to explain the existential fallacy. And as you will hear later in the show... I think this is probably the most logical 
of all of the logical fallacies. Mm-hmm, that's right. This fallacy is also made a bit murkier by the fact that different schools of thought approach it differently. But here is the simplest example I could find, which I've adapted from the excellent Iron Chariots wiki. Okay, here it is. All vampires are people. Therefore, some people are vampires. Now, see, the fictional idea of the vampire defines it as a kind of person, but you cross an existential line when you conclude, based on that fictional idea, that some people in the real world are vampires. Why should I care about this purely logical formality? I hear you screaming that in your head. Well, unless you have a logic test coming up or a grant proposal due for your philosophy department, you Probably don't have any reason to ever think about this ever again. But there is another school of thought that sees this existential fallacy a bit differently. And in my mind, that is the one we're thinking about. And this is a little tricky, but follow me here. Stephen Downs, in his Guide to Logical Fallacies, uses the existential fallacy to make a point about how statements based on things that don't exist can still be true statements. For instance, he says, think about a sign that says trespassers will be shot. Now, if no one ever trespasses and no one is ever shot, is that sign telling the truth? Is that a true statement? Well, he says, yes, it's a true statement. Even if the class of people, the set, the category of people we call trespassers is empty. If there are no trespassers in this scenario, if trespassers don't exist, still a true statement. Now we can extend this by saying... All vampires must drink blood to live. Now, that's fine. Vampires don't exist. But fictional ideas and rules about things that don't exist are some of the best ways to think about things that do. Hypotheticals, thought experiments, intuition pumps. You'll find that stuff all throughout philosophy, science, and literature. Fictional people, animals, events, locations, scenarios, all that stuff. So the idea that vampires kill people and drink their blood as a premise is totally okay. I can use vampires in all sorts of logical arguments, even though they don't actually exist. Now, this can lead to an existential fallacy. If I use vampires to make an argument that somehow also argues that vampires do exist. (laughs) Here's an example. Say your local legislator puts forth a bill seeking funding for an anti-vampire task force using this logic. All vampires are murderers. All murderers threaten public safety. Therefore, vampires threaten public safety. And therefore, we need to move some money away from the fire department in order to create a vampire department. Now, there's an existential fallacy right there because we've defended the very existence of vampires, because the conclusion, vampires threaten public safety, assumes and requires that we do so. The premises leading to that conclusion did not require that vampires exist, but the conclusion does, and that is an existential fallacy. Now, it should be noted, in some forms of logic, things have to exist before you can use them in arguments. And if that's the form of logic you are using, well, you've already done most of the work needed to avoid this fallacy. So what are some examples like this that you can think of? What are some examples of that kind of existential fallacy? How can you spot it? How can you avoid committing it, fight against it, and know when it's okay to just let that kind of scrutiny slide on by? 
That's what we're going to talk about. That's what we're going to learn about in this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast right after this short message from one of our sponsors. If you go to a store to buy a mattress, you go in and you just sort of play around and lay there on the mattress and pretend like you're sleeping on it and you don't really understand, you don't really get an idea of what it's going to be like, Casper Mattresses does something different. With Casper Mattresses, buying them is completely risk-free because you get free delivery, free returns, and 100 nights to sleep on it to decide if you want to keep this thing. That's right, more than three months you get to sleep on a Casper Mattress and if you don't love it, they will pick it up and refund everything to you. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on this thing. Now, Casper is a sleep brand that created a perfect mattress, one mattress, and they sell that directly to consumers, which eliminates commissions, inflated prices, and their award-winning sleep surface was developed in-house by a team of engineers that spent thousands of hours developing this thing so it's sleek, delivered in a small, how do they do that box? And you get adaptive pillows and breathable sheets all from the same company. Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It combines spring latex and supportive memory foam to create an award-winning sleep surface with just that right sink and just that right bounce. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. In fact, it's now the most awarded mattress of the decade. And it's made in America. So get $50 toward any mattress purchased by visiting www.casper.com slash so smart and use the offer code so smart. Terms and conditions apply. And now we return to our program. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And in this episode, we are discussing the existential fallacy. Man, I, th I think you may get several definitions for this. To be honest, I had to look up the existential fallacy to remind myself. <laughs> I'm sure I've read about it before, but, uh, but it's a pretty formal logical fallacy and not one that comes up in arguments in the real world all that often. So this fallacy is committed when you use two universal premises but you don't arrive at a universal conclusion. Um, it's an error in formal logic in which you take two universal statements to arrive at a particular conclusion. So you use two statements and arrive at a oh, particular, maybe it could be conclusion. Um, and it'll take the form all X are Y, all Z are X, therefore some Z are Y. I think this is probably the most logical of all of the logical fallacies, because mm -hmm. this reminds me of something when you should draw a Venn diagram or be like, if A equals B, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Unlike many other fallacies, I don't often find myself seething inwardly as someone is committing it. So it doesn't stay on my radar as much as the other fallacies do. It's clearest, I think, from just a made up example. So all purple birds are carnivorous. All carnivorous birds live in Asia. 
Therefore, there are purple birds in Asia. The trick here is that I never said that there are any purple birds. I just said that if there are any, they must be carnivorous. And if they're carnivorous, they live in Asia. Let's say that you're talking about dolphins. Um, just imagine it. Trust me. Right? No, so all sea creatures... As, as I do. As you do. Um, all sea creatures live in the water. All dolphins are sea creatures. Therefore... Some dolphins live in the water. That doesn't strike me as as feeling wrong. But when you substitute the the second category, uh, dolphins, um, with a set that doesn't have any members, you'll you'll see that the the reasoning kind of falls apart. All sea creatures live in the water. All mermaids are sea creatures. Therefore, some mermaids live in the water. Right. Right. At, at no point in that argument do you establish that mermaids actually exist. So it's kind of a smart-ass trick. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and I, I, I think it only really comes up when you're trying to construct sort of logically airtight arguments, um, which you only really do in formal domains like you know, math or logic. It's like, you know, all corn dogs are made of uh, with some meat. Therefore, some uh, meat will be in corn dogs. And if you want to get super strict about this fallacy, you'd have to say, well, you, I can't be absolutely sure at any given time that the set of corn dogs currently contains any corn dogs. There might not be any corn dogs right now. Right. Um, and, and that's a, it's such a strange way to think about the world. And, and that's the thing, like before you decide to have a strong opinion about the qualities of a thing, it's a good idea to make sure that the thing exists first. Um, because <laughs> if you want to hold your opponent uh, to this this fallacy, you're going to have to say something like, "Yeah, well, prove to me that dolphins exist," you know, and that's just going to be a bro- uh, a blow to your credibility, you know. Yeah, um, I would just, I would imagine. Yes, I could see that in a presidential debate it would not go over well. Yeah, yeah. So I think in real life we don't. If we if we said all purple birds are carnivorous, like. That can logically be, you know, a valid way to argue, but the sort of colloquial rules of how how we communicate with each other say that we would never say that if there weren't any purple birds. So mm-hmm. it's it's more of a rule of of implicit human communication that I think makes this a hard um, thing to do accidentally. So, um, you know, how do if you this is not something I think that we would see very often um, in its its pure naked form. But how would you spot it in the wild? I think it's more difficult than some of the other fallacies. Mm-hmm. I think just being able to tell if an argument is sound is much easier than sitting down and drawing a Venn diagram, as I have said so many times <laughs> right, <laughs> to right. you. Um, I think it can be intuitive if you ask yourself, does this argument make sense? Do these things exist? And could could this happen? Could this be a conclusion from, from those things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is one of those, there's several logical fallacies that begin with an assumption that, yes. something, that something's already true about the world, you know? Yes. Like, uh, and, and I think as soon as you hear that kind of language, you should be alerted that something's going on. Something yes. Something's weird. Yes. Well, so I think being aware of the context of the 
issue is important. So in, in real life, often arguments are more probabilistic. Um, you're talking about statistical tendencies, not binary yes-nos. But in, in some contexts, you are someone is trying to make a, a, an airtight argument, not just a statistical argument. Um, and so in those contexts, I think you should, should have your logical thinking cap on and watch out for, um, for any ways that the logic could fail, including you know, statements that might make sense colloquially, um, but if you think about them as a logician, um, you, you, you'll like notice that they, uh, they aren't airtight, and this is one of the ways. So um, pay attention to when you're making uh, broad assumptions before you even begin uh, creating the, the argument that's going to like uh, to prove your assumptions are true. I think this is part of, part of this in some way. Yeah, definitely. And I think paying attention to when you're making broad assumptions is just good general advice mm-hmm. to, to use in life. So how do you defend against this? This is this is this being like the most logical of all logical fallacies. Um, how do we defend against it? I think defending against it is something that helps when you have pen and paper for this mm-hmm. one. I mean, it seems so mathematical. Like I almost feel like you have to write it out or draw it out and really break it down sentence by sentence. Like to to question if if somebody is is committing this fallacy when they're uh, they're forming an argument and talking to you, you really need to go back and question the first assumption and then uh, question the conclusion as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would, um, if anything, just doing that once or twice it would help put you into the, the the thinking mode of of knowing that that's possible even when you don't need to do that. And uh, so if if there's anything useful about this, even if we may not ever see it that often or use it that often, there is something useful in just knowing that logic is graphable. (laughs) Definitely. And I think that defending yourself against this one is really step-by-step critical thinking. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And it's just a very different mode from the way that we're used to interpreting sentences and communicating and thinking about issues in the real world where, you know, nothing has a probability of zero or one. But in in rarefied domains like math or logic or or some types of philosophy, they do. That's a really interesting idea. The notion that nothing in the real world is has a probability of zero or one hundred percent, and it it makes it makes you think about the the idea, the notions that you know is math modeling the real world or is it its own thing? Is it its own? system of, of thinking? Are there, are there rules that apply only to mathematical models that don't actually apply to the physical world that we live in, that we exist in, that we interact with? What are your thoughts on that? Well, so the analogy I would use here is, is that a square is a, a perfect mathematical object. And there are squares in the real world, things we call squares, but none of them are perfect squares, right? Um, in the sense that, uh, you know, they're made of atoms. <laughs> and uh, so you, you don't have this perfect, unbroken, uh, exactly straight line, uh, you know, connecting two sides of the square, etc. Uh, and, you know, similarly, you can have, th- th- this is my analogy to the difference between uh, arguments in philosophy or logic and arguments in the real world. Um, there's always a little bit of noise, a little bit of randomness, a little bit of uncertainty in in your arguments in the real world, um, or in the the models that you form of reality. Um, 
And the more formal justification for my claim that you can't have beliefs of zero or one comes from uh, the Bayesian framework. Uh, Mm -hmm. So this is a long story. I won't go into all of it here, but uh, Bayes' theorem is this simple theorem from probability theory uh, showing how you should um, update your credence, your your confidence in a claim as you learn uh, new information about the world, um, as you get new evidence. And... And what you realize when you uh, really sit down with Bayes' theorem is that if you start out with a confidence of either zero or 100%, then there's no amount of evidence that could budge you at all. Just mathematically, you can't, you know, if you multiply something by zero, you're just going to still end up with zero, uh, no matter how big that evidence is. Um, so that's one way to think about uh, why it's it's incoherent to have, have beliefs at, at zero or one. When it comes to this existential fallacy, it's such a strange thing that, uh, and you may not ever be put in this position, but do you, is there any, do you have any advice about how you would defend against it if, um, if it, if it sort of, uh, falls in your path, how would you defend against this thing? I guess my advice for countering the existential fallacy would just be to, uh, keep looking for counterexamples, um, to arguments. So, uh, well, this is more advice for how to spot it than how to counter it, I suppose. I, I mean, I think um, countering it once you've spotted it is actually pretty easy because in the domain of, of formal reasoning, you can just point out, hey, look, uh, you know, A implies B, um, not B, therefore not A is just a fallacy. Um, here's a counterexample. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty straightforward um, argument as things as arguments go. So I, I don't think it's too hard to point out a hole in the logic to someone who's you know explicitly trying to make a logical argument. These are going to be I, I totally enjoy. I mean, like um, as an aside from from just what we're doing here, I enjoy the um, when I start when you get into the logical fallacy side of science and psychology and everything. I really enjoy how some of them immediately make sense and you can use them every day. And then some of them you're like, wow, this is, this really, um, this really kind of almost gets to the nuts and bolts of how brains work in general, which is fun and interesting. Yeah. Um, this this um, one is a brain breaker. This, this, this one is, uh, it, even as you're reading it, like I, it, you know, when I was trying to process it before we, we, we spoke, um, and just trying to get my, my head around it, you know, I was wondering, is, is somehow there an equivocation going on with the word some or and, and it's just it's it's like, you know, looking at, uh, I don't know, like an almost an inkblot test and you projecting all the fallacies that, you know, onto it and you just can't yeah. quite your, you know, wrap your mind around it. It's just, it's just a tough one. I like I like the idea of these in I like like the sentences that are like, you know, this sentence is true the previous sentence is false like i love that that's a totally that totally breaks everything that uh that goes into how we communicate and how we think and everything and how easy it is to do that in just two sentences and a lot of these fallacies do that for me and that they they sort of draw the they put into relief the um the fact that the brain is generating this um 
is not only just gener- not only generating this model of reality that we're all that we're sharing, but also the way we're trying to communicate it back and forth. And it's not a perfect system, and it never will right, be. It's, right. It's, it's it's very good enough. And um, and, it, and it lays bare things that you didn't realize that you assumed. That's the 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 other thing. You know, it it it, it points out that this is a, a constructed system of perception and communication, right? Right. Um, so, yeah, lays bare yeah. the basic components. Yeah, just like not trusting your intuition and learning and learning how to do that yeah. as a as a as a way of thinking. There's also the to the the epiphany and that comes that is important to get to at some point in your formal education that that um that reality is constructed and we interact with a model of it and that communication is never perfect and there's in semantics and all the other stuff comes into play mm-hmm. because I think that that I think that there isn't I think that one of our weird intuitions is that we can perfectly describe things or that we can perfectly communicate things or that we can perfectly understand things mm-hmm. um and if you if you are proceeding from that assumption that can really get us into some messy places and I think that there's a I think there's a kind of person and a kind of ideological standpoint that um that sort of leans in that direction that leans in the direction of absolutes and truths and things like that. Mm -hmm. And that, that tends to be the one that, um, that traditionally in the course of human history, at least from my personal perspective has kind of got us, uh, in the muck more often than not. Yes, I I agree. I, and, and it's, it's a, it's a tough and humbling thing to realize, uh, that, you know, your perception is an approximation. Um, that it, that it's a model and that it's not unmediated by many different processes, many of which you are not aware of. All right. um, it's it's it it uh, it's humbling. Bob Blaskowitz is an assistant professor of critical thinking at Stockton University and very active in the skeptic community. You can find him in places like virtualskeptics.com, skepticalhumanities.com, and the Skepticality Podcast. Vanessa Hill is a science educator and writer and stop-motion animator who hosts BrainCraft, which you can find on YouTube as part of the PBS Digital Studios family, where she teaches psychology and neuroscience through crafty, interesting videos, her website is nessiehill.com. Julia Galef is the president and co-founder of the Center for Applied Rationality, and she hosts the Rationally Speaking podcast in addition to making YouTube videos, lecturing, and writing for a number of publications you've probably heard of. You can find her at juliagaleff.com. I'll have links to all their stuff at youarenotsosmart.com and in the show notes. This was our final episode with these three experts. We'll have new experts in any future episodes about logical fallacies. Up next, a commercial, and then a cookie, and then the end credits.
I've been telling you about the Great Courses Plus for a while now, and many of you have already signed up for this video service, and now you have unlimited access to more than 7,000 video lectures taught by award-winning professors. But if you haven't signed up for the Great Courses Plus yet, now, right now, is the perfect time since I have a very special offer to tell you about shortly. The Great Courses Plus lets you learn about anything that interests you science, history, how to cook, how to speak Spanish. You can watch these engaging online video lectures anytime, anywhere, using your TV, laptop, tablet, or smartphone. I recently started watching the course, The Science of Information, which is absolutely fascinating. This course talks about everything from horse races, to genetic information, to logic gates, to neural codes, to entropy and microstate information. This is a really fascinating course that you can get along with 7,000 other courses from The Great Courses Plus. I know you'll love The Great Courses Plus as much as I do. And if you sign up today as one of my podcast listeners, you will get one month free to start watching as many lectures as you want. And you get that immediately. Just click the buttons. Click, click, click. Make sure you check out this one that I'm watching, The Science of Information. I know you will like it. And if you want to start your free trial today, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. What starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for cookie. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader of the books. And if you send in a recipe and Mandy cooks them, that's my wife, Amanda, if she cooks those cookies and I eat them on the show, you get a signed copy of either You Are Not So Smart, the book, or the sequel, You Are Now Less Dumb. Send those recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. And we have all the recipes up at the website, You Are Not So Smart. Just find the cookie stuff. They're all there. You don't have to go to Pinterest anymore. We put them all up on the website. Detailed instructions, pictures, the whole thing. So this episode, the cookie comes from, I have it right here in front of me. This is an email from Samantha Menzies, who sent this in <laughs> 2012. Yes, we get a lot of cookies, but we do get to them eventually. She writes, would you kindly make my chewy chocolate chip hazelnut cookies? And uh, we did. <laughs> That's the whole email. I mean, she has the recipe on here too, which is sugar and brown sugar and baking soda and baking powder and butter and flour and eggs and vanilla and chocolate chips and hazelnuts. So simple. And they look like this, they have this, again, the platonic solid of cookies. This, these are the simplest form of cookie. You can make a chocolate chip hazelnut cookie and they're easy to make. I have one right in front of me and my mouth is watering and here we go. Yum, 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 yum. Just, just right. Mm. So this is like 
just a three chord song. This is just a three chord cookie right here. And that is fine. You know, making a cookie like this and eating it. Mm, it's like when you learn a song from a band you love. And it's one of their simpler songs. It's like learning Creep by Stone Temple Pilots. And you're like, oh, wow, this is a lot easier than I thought. It's all in the strumming. I mean, except for that little diddle that goes. You know what I mean? That's what this cookie is. It is learning how to play Stone Temple Pilots Creep on your acoustic guitar and realizing, you know what? Three chords, just fine. If you put them together the right way. Thank you, Samantha Menzies. A book is on its way. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart Podcast. Head to boingboingpodcasts.com for more great podcasts like this one. Go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart to become a patron of the show to support this program to make it better. Go to youarenotsosmart.com for the show notes and for all the other information for all the past episodes of the show. Go there, go to iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud. You can get all the old episodes there. Go to Boing Boing to get all the old episodes. Get all the old episodes. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The music beds in this episode were by Drew Garraway, who is Synthetic Motion on SoundCloud. Also, thank you to Bombas for sponsoring this show. Go to bombas.com slash so smart for 20% off your first order of game changing socks. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash so smart. You can find You Are Not So Smart on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. I am at David McRaney. Find us on Facebook. It's just You Are Not So Smart. About 350,000 fans now. Join up. See all the stuff we put on there. Fun memes and junk. And uh, we'll be back soon. More stuff. More not-so-smart stuff. Send me cookies. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? 
Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.